Well, we're happy to have John Siebert with us again, uh, CPA, who served many dental practitioners around the country, and he is a great information source on a number of different topics related to tax and accounting. And today we're talking about tax considerations when selling a practice. So John, our uh, long in the tooth group here is primarily made up of dental practice owners who are late in their careers and they're interested in knowing how to manage uh, taxes now and, and in the future as they plan uh, for what's ahead for them. So uh, I think this topic is uh, a valuable topic for their consideration and happy to have you join us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're, uh, we're first going to uh, talk about one thing you brought up in a previous segment, and it's something that we don't have that much, or I say we, I mean the dental industry as far as uh, those who uh, uh, assist dental practice owners in transitioning their practices to new ownership do not have a lot of experience in because many dental practice sales occur with 100% lender financing, and that may continue to be the case. However, you indicated you thought that there might likely be more installment sales in the future for tax purposes. And so why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about how installment sales would work? Sure. So if we have an installment sale, typically what that means is that the selling doctor is carrying part of the note and the buyer is paying him over time. So since this is falling then over multiple years, the IRS allows us to recognize the income as we get paid over multiple years instead of the day we actually sell the practice. Given where we think the tax code is going to be headed and the current president campaigned on eliminating the long-term capital gains preference for taxpayers with income in excess of a million dollars, if I've got a larger practice that we're trying to sell, an installment sale may become incredibly attractive because it would allow us to manipulate our net income, especially in the first year, to keep us under that million dollar threshold and keeping our capital gains taxes at either 15 or 20% instead of at 39.6. So, I mean, you're potentially looking at a 20% tax difference on the sale of the practice. The trick, though, is, is that we have to be able to structure the cash flows so that you, the receipts are coming in over multiple years. And if we're dealing with lender financing, then the banks are going to have to be willing to get creative and work with the selling doc to maybe, okay, we're going to close this on December 31st, and we're going to pay you 50% of the proceeds on the 31st. We're going to pay you 50% of the loan proceeds on January 2nd. Now we have an installment sale that falls over two calendar years. And then that would allow us to try and keep the selling doctor's income under that million dollar threshold. Got it. As the code's written today, we don't care, mm -hmm. but it may become vitally important from a planning perspective if the tax law changes here in the next six or seven months. I could see how a lot of sellers would want to reduce their taxes so they would give this serious consideration. But for the most part, especially up to this point in time when this is recorded, since the tax code hasn't changed yet, you know, most sellers really don't want the added risk of, of seller financing. They'd rather receive Correct. All, all the disbursement at one time. Uh, so um, do you anticipate that if seller financing becomes and uh, installment sales become more popular, that it would impact the, the sale price of practices a little bit? Because if the sellers are bearing more risk, it seems like they, the buyer should pay a little bit more 
but then if it's being done for the seller's tax benefit, maybe not so much. Right. I mean, it's going to become a negotiation detail, just like just about every other point of the negotiation process in selling or buying a practice. Um, yeah, I don't know that it necessarily gives one side of the equation more leverage than the other. We're just, we're just going to have to see and work our way through a few of these. Okay. Well, let's talk now about um, asset sales and equity sales. Maybe you could touch sure. on equity sales first. I know they're very rare in dental practice sales, but they do happen on occasion. Right. So when whenever a business owner sells a business, there's two ways from an accounting perspective we can account for this. We're either selling our, our shares of stock or our membership interest in the entity, which is an equity sale, or we're selling all the assets to the buyer, which is an asset sale. They have different tax advantages for the buyer and different tax consequences for the seller. Um, with dental practices, historically, the vast, vast, vast majority of sales are asset sales. But in certain circumstances, it may make sense to look to see if we can structure this as an equity sale. We just wrapped up working with a seller who sold a practice to their child. Um, and in this instance, you know, it, the seller wasn't so much interested in maximizing the, the value of the practice. The buyer, because the way the deal was structured, it was structured as an equity sale that the selling price was actually gifted to the buyer out of the seller's estate. So the there is no tax ramifications to the buyer and the buyer doesn't care that they have no basis then to be able to do depreciation or amortize anything because, in effect, they're getting a sweetheart deal on the purchase of the practice. The seller then gets to treat this as all long-term capital gain at a, ta at a preferable tax rate. So when the stars align and it makes sense to do it, then it can be a very powerful way for the selling doc to really minimize his tax burden. In a normal non-related party transaction, however, it's going to be very rare that you're going to find a buyer that's going to be willing to, to pay for a practice and then not be able to recover any of that until they in turn sell it, right. which is why we end up with an asset sale as being the way the vast majority of these practices are sold. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that one equity sale example with sure. us. So now going over to asset sales, let's talk a little bit about asset allocation uh, we've got uh, capital gains uh, treatment uh, for some of the sale, and then we have ordinary income treatment for uh, eligibility right. for other parts of it. So when we sell our assets, there's actually seven classes of assets, according to the Internal Revenue Service, that we have to sell. And there is a form that gets added to both the buyer and the seller's tax return when, when a business is sold. Basically, so that the IRS understands that both parties agree to how these assets are being treated so that the buyer isn't depreciating more than what they're entitled to. The seller isn't claiming capital gains treatment on more than what they're entitled to. By and large, we don't care a whole lot about the first four classes. It's when we get to class five where we're dealing with tangible property and then classes six and seven that deal with intangible property that we get into the meat and potatoes of negotiating on the sale. So when I'm the selling doc, seller doc and I'm selling assets, whenever we sell depreciable property, 
we're required to do what we call recapture all that depreciation that you've taken over time. And that depreciation recapture is taxed as ordinary income. And if you think about it, that makes sense because when we wrote off depreciation expense, it was an expense against ordinary income. So it's not an equitable position for you to then take that when you sell it and treat that as capital gain. So if I've got half a million dollars of fixed assets that we're selling to the buyer and it's all depreciated, I'm going to have half a million dollars of ordinary income from the sale and there's nothing we can do about that. The difference between the fixed assets that we're selling and the sales price is created goodwill. By definition, created goodwill is a capital asset. So we get long-term capital gains treatment on that piece of it. And this is where the negotiation comes in. Because if I'm the if I'm the selling doc, I want as much of this to be goodwill as I can. Sure. If I'm the buying doc, I want as much of it to be fixed assets as I can, because now I can expense under bonus depreciation or section 179, 100% of that in the year I buy it. If I'm buying an intangible, if I'm buying goodwill, I have to write that off on a straight line basis over 15 years. So this is where Bob comes in. And, and as we work with the both parties on negotiating the selling point price and how we're filling out this tax form on how we're allocating the break between tangible property we're selling and the non-compete, which is an intangible asset and the created goodwill because they have different tax effects for both the buyer and the seller. Yeah, so that just becomes one piece of the puzzle in reaching an agreement through negotiations and advisors work with their clients throughout the United States. You know, you've got uh, sale price. You've got uh, if the seller works for the buyer as a provider after the sale, what's the compensation rate going to be? Maybe the uh, practice seller is also selling the real estate or going to lease the real estate to the, the practice buyer. And then you've got this allocation of goodwill. So I like to look at it as a picture with all the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle uh, needing to fit together. And uh, so the way to make them fit is sometimes a seller may get their full pop or get their full price, listing price on the practice sale, but maybe they don't get something else they want. Perhaps they, they have to change the asset allocation a little bit to to get the price, the sale price they want, or maybe they didn't quite get what they wanted on the sale price, but they maxed out on their asset allocation and they maxed out on their compensation rate after the sale if they go to work for the seller or go to work for the buyer and so on. So uh, all those things interrelate. Now, I have a question about uh, class six and, well, it's on, 80, on IRS form 8594, and I think this is a good idea to do it. I know probably most advisors don't do this, but when there's a closing, I think it's good to have a form filled out for the buyer and one filled out for the seller, and then just have the asset allocation for the sale of that practice listed on those two forms. And of course, it'll be the same. You know, if one party got audited, it's going to need to have the same number as on the other party's form, or we've got problems. And so it's just good to have the buyer and seller acknowledge officially what that asset asset allocation is going to be in addition to having that spelled out in the asset purchase agreement. Correct. And so the IRS calls uh, the class six property. That's where the non-compete would get uh, 
listed. Can you tell us where the different classes are, where the non-compete, the goodwill, and the tangible property would be listed, John? So the, the tangible property is considered a class five asset. So that's where all the furniture, fixtures, building, any equipment that we would be selling, generally those are considered class five assets. Got it. The class six assets are all of our intangibles except for goodwill and going concern value. So if I have a non-compete that we're selling, that's an intangible asset that is not considered goodwill. Mm -hmm. So it would be a class six asset. And then everything left over is by definition then the created goodwill that the, that the selling doctor is selling. Got it. And then what we've seen is usually this is an exhibit that's attached to the selling to the purchase agreement. Um, either we're attaching a physical copy of the tax form or we're spelling it out, but in the same format as it would appear on the form. So typically, you know, we're not worried about class one assets. Those are cash. You're not selling cash. We may be dealing with accounts receivable after the sale. So you would spell those out as class two, but we're going to spell out specifically in the document so that both the buyer and the seller know how to treat everything on their respective tax forms. Good. And that and both sides are consistent in their treatment of everything. But to be clear, the non-compete agreement is considered uh, class six. And that's- uh, In my opinion, the non-compete would, non would be a class six. It's an intangible except for goodwill. Okay. So the non-compete would not be considered goodwill or going concern value. On the form, it actually, the form says add six and seven together, and seven's a goodwill, so the intangibles are added together and put it on the form in that way. On the actual tax form, they get reported together, but if we were just going to type this up, you might see it spelled out separately in the purchase agreement. Right. Okay. And we already touched a little bit on a previous segment about perhaps uh, uh, splitting the sale, an installment sale up between different years, now moving off of uh, the uh, equity sale and the asset sale but moving back to the installment sale topic just a little bit. So, you know, it's not uh, convenient for everybody to sell half of their practice on December 31st and the other half on January right. 2nd, but uh, um, moving forward. Or if we're trying to get out now, we don't want to wait another 10 months before we get the second half of our cash. Right, right. There's always the possibility that the, the new tax legislation may not become effective till January 1 of 2022. That's and correct. So uh, that would be an incentive for maybe sellers on the fence to, to get, get with it this calendar year. Right. Yeah. As of February 1, 2021, no legislation has been proposed. We're working strictly off of what president Biden campaigned on and what he opined on during the transition. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, and I, I'd like to touch on one other thing, the practical aspect of getting a deal done. When we talk about asset allocation, I'm, I'm jumping back and forth here, but it just kind of popped in my mind here is that, uh, Sometimes practice owners, practice sellers say, well, I need to get my equipment appraised. And uh, it's, you know, actually rare that we get equipment appraised. How is that number usually established? It's in the art of the negotiation. You know, from our chair, it's very, very rare for the Internal Revenue Service under audit to question the allocations between the classes as long as we're reasonable and we're consistent. So if I've got a deal that is a, just to pull a number out of there, is a million dollar deal and I'm selling assets with it, we can't arbitrarily put the value of the fixed assets so low as to be unreasonable. I can't say I'm only selling $10,000 of fixed assets when I've got six operatories that we're selling that has 
equipment that's five years old or newer. So we have to be reasonable in our allocation of what the fixed assets are that we're selling. So is it necessary to get an appraisal? I would say no. Um, unless we have a situation where the two parties just can't come to t agreement on a reasonable break between the class five fixed assets and the class six and seven intangibles, then maybe bringing in an outside impartial third party to set the number might be attractive. Yeah, sometimes, uh, like I'm just thinking of two practices in Cincinnati, Ohio, that I interacted with here in the last week or so. And one practice has two CIRAC machines. Those are the CAD CAM machines that, uh, you know, uh, uh, form the, the crowns in office. And uh, then they've got uh, one or two lasers. You know, they've got all the, they've got a lot of technology there. And uh, there are other offices that have, you know, 20 year old equipment. There, there are even practice sales that are patient records only sales, and they have no tangible assets whatsoever. So you've got you've got the whole gamut. Right. We run the gamut. Yeah. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us on this segment about uh, how uh, uh, the tax consequences may affect uh, dental practice sellers. And uh, we uh, we don't run advertisements on Long and the Tooth, but we're happy to have you join us. And there may be somebody that has questions that would like to connect with you. Could you please share your contact information? Absolutely. So you can reach me via email at John, J-O-H-N, at Columbus, then a hyphen or a dash, CPA.com. And then our phone number here at the office is 614-367-7850. Thank you, John. We'll see you next Thank you. time.